Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here with Christoph Irwin, the regular host of the podcast. Hello. We're here today to tell you a little bit about the future of what we've got going on here. We're very excited about the response that we've had to this podcast. It's been great with just five episodes and we're working on planning out the next year of our material. We have a lot of really exciting co-hosts, a lot of really exciting interviews that we're going to do on a range of building science topics that we think you'll enjoy very much. Yeah, we've got some great guest hosts coming your way and some really good people to interview. In today's podcast, we're going to go over some of the fundamental principles of HVAC. We feel like understanding the HVAC system and its components are crucial to really seeing it as an integrated system with the rest of the structure. HVAC stands for the letters HVAC, which in turn stand for concepts of heating, ventilating, and air conditioning. A couple of overarching comments about HVAC systems generally is one is that it's an evolving system, or more accurately, an evolving system of systems. And it could be and should be thought of as the comfort delivery system for the building. That's its main role. You have people in the building, they want to experience certain things, health and comfort being high on the list, durable buildings also on the list. And that's what the HVAC system is responsible for. There is currently an artificial distinction or separation between the building enclosure and the mechanical systems, mechanical systems being another word for HVAC systems. Often on a job site, um, the mindset is that the job site is like a baton in a relay race and it gets handed off between the people, you know, at the highest level, between the people responsible for the enclosure and then eventually for the people responsible for all the systems that go into the enclosure. That might work for electrical and plumbing. That, That view is wrong when it comes to a comfort delivery system. The enclosure is absolutely part of the comfort delivery system. Can't stress that enough, how important the enclosure is. These days there's this, there's this um, I don't want to call it a buzzword, um, but there's we this- We can call it a buzzword. Let's call, okay, I'll call it a buzzword. It's a buzzword. Integrated design, integrated design. It's out there, it's considered to be mecca for many architects and design teams. In the residential context, there is something of a fatal flaw The flaw is that once the client has signed to have an architect design a house, the architect has, in most cases, has already shown him some drawings, some plans. They've done some programming. And eventually there's a swoon moment. The client goes, that's the house. I want you to make me that house. And they enter into a contractual agreement to design that house. Well, the classic sense of integrated design is you start with the basics, orientation, aperture, shading, uh, massing, all those basics, and then you move from there. In the residential world, integrated design really boils down to integrating the systems that deliver comfort and performance for the client into the building that the client has decided they want to have. So when you say systems, what exactly do you mean? Well, the big ones would be the mechanical systems, electrical systems, and plumbing. But within mechanical, we're going to be going through that list. Heating, cooling, ventilating, etc. 
So that's what I mean by systems. That's a good point. And mechanical systems, that's typically what it means. You, you don't um, typically call your your drain waste vent pipes or your copper supply pipes or, or PEC supply pipes your mechanical system. The water heater might get included in that. Uh, pool systems would be mechanical systems. And of course, heating, cooling, ventilating, dehumidifying, all of those would be uh, systems. And since we never see these systems, but we do know that they work together in, in a myriad of capacities, they're implicitly integrated, right? And so really putting some more thought to that and saying, we're intentionally setting these things up to work together. Right. That's the, that's the key moment. Right? Uh, that is it. Yeah. So there's lots of definitions of integrated design. And one simple one that, that seems to work for me is this idea of aiming toward multiple simultaneous positive outcomes. Aiming toward multiple simultaneous positive outcomes. Say that one more time for everybody. <laughs> multiple <laughs> simultaneous positive outcomes. You aim from the start for that. And, it really would start ideally with an owner's project requirement conversation where the owner has some implicit expectations on what the home's going to do for them and you do this radical thing of you ask them and you write it down. That's pretty wild. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if the industry can handle that. Yeah. So integrated design's a big deal and I want to just point out that in the residential world, you guys that want to do integrated design, fear not, you can do it and it really involves like from a first order level, it involves the comfort delivery systems being integrated into the building. Think of it like a, um, a, a sports car chassis and suspension mixed to its engine. There is no separation from the user experience. It's a single integrated experience. Mm -hmm. um, and we build that machine, that car, to experience the desired results in a very similar way we do that with us. For you listeners at home, you've just heard of Lucy. She's a fantastic dog, and we really enjoy having dogs around when we do work or we record a podcast. She was a bit bored with what we had to say about HVAC systems and was rolling around on the ground. We snapped a hilarious picture of it, and it's available for you to see at our Instagram account, which is at PositiveEnergyATX. Back to the story. So when you say it's possible to integrate in the residential space, you mean... That currently some system exists where it, there's not a lot of thought put into it in terms of how it's integrated. It's more or less just thrown up as an afterthought. <laughs> I don't want to come down as, as the bad guy or the judge on exactly how it goes, but I imagine a lot of our listeners would admit that basically the structure gets created and then in the typical scenario, the mechanical contractor walks in and looks around and sees what he can pull off now. That's not integration. No, and it's not really true design either. It's, it's, it's wishful thinking, and you don't want to let the comfort of your client, the durability, the indoor air quality, sit on the shoulders of wishful thinking. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a big deal, and it's a bit of a pervasive, pervasive problem, and there's layers and layers to this onion. And, and ultimately, uh, well, maybe not ultimately, but the next, one of the next layers down is that there's an expectation from our consumer base on how much a square foot of conditioned space is going to cost. Right. And uh, implicitly with the, within the builders and architect community, there is, uh, over time, and there, there's documentation on this, over time the relative cost of the mechanical system to the enclosure, to the overall project, has gone down, down, down. It's pathetic. Sometimes it's in the one to three... 5% of all the construction costs 
are associated with the systems that deliver comfort. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's the very reason that McMansions exist, right? It's people want these, yeah. they have this idyllic kind of home that's it's big. It's awe-inspiring when you see it to the extent that you can't afford something that's highly customized and is actually performing. Yeah, and so yeah. that's the disconnect mm-hmm. that I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you it's kind of sad to see. Someone spends a lot of money on a really nice, luxurious house, but from a mechanical system concept, and even from the wall assembly perspective, what they end up with is a big, as in large, average home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's not worth extra money. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe if you have a lot of people in your family. So yeah, let's talk about the enclosure briefly. Uh, we, we've mentioned, I've said in the beginning of this, that you cannot overstate the role of the enclosure. It's constantly mediating heat, air, and moisture flow. If you want to maintain an indoor environment, of a good quality, then you need to separate it from the outdoor environment. It needs to be separated predictably and reliably. Um, there's a few ways to test the enclosure. One is at the design stage, you can simply calculate the thermal flux density, which is a, sounds fancy, but it's really just your manual J load calculation. You take the, the peak flux, right? So manual J will say, oh, you're, you need a five ton system. That means you need You have 60,000 BTUs per hour. That's a flux, amount of heat per time. That means that at at its peak cooling moment, you need 60,000 BTUs of heat every hour. Um, And what would be an example of a peak cooling moment? Oh, four in the afternoon on August 17th or something like that. you've got 20 people in your house. Yeah. So when you're thinking about a five-ton system, you're thinking about 60,000 BTUs an hour. and a BTU, let's talk about that for a second. It's it's a, a kitchen match being lit and burning from end to end, right? A large kitchen match. A large kitchen match. So if you've got 60,000 of those every hour, that's 60 minutes in an hour. You've got 1,000 matches every minute. That comes out to almost 17 matches per second being lit. That's a lot of heat. If someone wants to put one kitchen match in your hand and ask you to... Let it burn all the way down to nothing. That sucks. That's a lot of heat. You're I don't have want a it. Big burn. <laughs> but we're we're so it's. It, I just trying to. I'm glad that we. Good job, Michael. I'm glad we got us able to give you a sense of how much heat we're talking about. How much heat is moving across an enclosure per second, per minute, per hour. My point is that if you want to characterize that enclosure, you take that number. How many BTUs per hour, and you normalize it by the square footage. It could either be the conditioned floor area. Or it can be the six-sided enclosure area. Um, when it's done on floor area, you want to get that number small. The smaller the number, the fewer BTUs per hour are moving across each square foot. So a good number to aim for would be 10 or less. Okay. A passive house might be four or five. Uh, an average home, an average new-built home will probably be 20. An existing home, older, might be 40 BTUs an hour. Per square foot. So we talked about we cannot overstate the role of the enclosure, and here's another subtle one before we jump into the, the specifics. We cannot overstate the role of space for the mechanical system, and this includes air distribution. When you make a, a sports car, you leave room for the engine, and you put on good tires. When you make a mechanical system, you leave room for it. You leave room for distribution, and you make sure there's good diffusers. Ideally, you put them in the right spot, high on a sidewall, aiming towards exterior walls. These There are compromises, and we accept them regularly on our design projects. 
but that that's a compromise and if mm-hmm. someone wants a slot diffuser or a floor grate that's great they do change the aesthetics and improve the aesthetics they don't improve district no excuse me they don't improve mixing or throw things mm-hmm. like that and it really does i've noticed it takes a lot of a combinant thought of art and math between the builder and the architect to really think through where the mechanicals are going to go because if you have a huge web truss system mm-hmm. that's going to be really difficult to run ducts through because you think yeah. about the inefficiencies of turning your ducts and, and moving them in spaces where the air is not being efficiently distributed and that becomes a big problem so yeah. it's better to get ahead of it at the front end of the project than to wonder how the hell you're going to do it when mm-hmm. you're actually in the attic yeah yeah and there's there's things you can do i mean there's like uh, red built trusses they have uh, metal webs that opens up a lot of space. By the way, they're not a sponsor. I probably should have said there's. Wide... We don't have any sponsors on this show yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Not yet. There are trusses that you can use. There's lots you can do, and the point is that that conversation happening at the design stage—that's integration. That is the first order effect available for residential designers. Having these conversations early, getting someone on the mechanical side that understands enclosures and is sympathetic to something like thermal flux density and the implications of a large expansive glazing and where the ideal spot and how the compromises are going to work. It should be noted that when thermal flux density gets really low, the locations of the diffusers and their throw and mixing becomes far less significant. And one last idea is that you you do all this work, you come up with a design, right? How, that's an exciting step. You have an actual full design for your home's mechanical system, and then you test it in process and final carefully throughout the process to make sure it's actually working to, yeah you do something like a commissioning process which could be included also in this integrated design if you're integrating for multiple simultaneous positive outcomes aiming toward multiple simultaneous positive outcomes then testing gets folded in to that so those are the basics that's the track laid what are the specifics of an hvac system what are we actually putting into the house we are putting in systems to deliver comfort and health, and those could be broken down into functional roles. We're going to be put in a system to, to provide heat. By the way, I'm going to try to be going through this list in priority order. This is not necessarily the order of time spent during the design integration stage or anything like that, but if a home doesn't have heat, even here in Austin, Texas, there, there are going to be a few days a year where it's possibly life-threatening. We had several 20-degree days last year in a row. Um, so heat, that's high on the list. You need to heat. The next thing you need to do is provide fresh air for breathing. This one can't be overstated either. Ventilation right now, ventilation is, not, the main thing that's done is nothing. And then the next thing it's done is you run the whole central mechanical system um, to deliver air, which works, but it's not a good idea. But in terms of priority order, ventilation is the next thing. After that, you're going to do filtration. Make sure that air is particulate free and that's a big deal here yeah. in Austin, particularly because Ta-da. we have particularly, right? Like that pun. Uh, <laughs> that was good. Um, but it is a big deal because allergens are so high here. I mean, it's number one on the list in North America for allergens concentrated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Plants. Yeah. So filtering doesn't just mean putting a filter somewhere. It means managing the approach and the velocity and understanding a lot of design features on how filters actually work. Controlling indoor humidity, that's the next priority here in our climate zone. In other climate zones, it might not be. It might be um, the next one will go to cooling. And then distribution, you need to deliver 
the heating and cooling to the different zones. You need to deliver filtered air and dehumidified air to the different zones. And if you've heard our other podcast on radiant systems, you can deliver heating and cooling through thermally active surfaces, and then you can deliver dehumidification, filtration, and ventilation through airside systems. That would be pretty awesome, but you can deliver heating and cooling through air just fine as well. And then there's the other category, which is not to be like the other and therefore less important things. Things like interlocked makeup air, spot ventilation, garage ventilation. These are all very important and they need uh, makeup air for fireplaces if they're present. Uh, by the way, the interlocked makeup air, I meant interlocked makeup air for range hoods. Um, so just thinking about your mechanical system, there are a lot of moving pieces. Oh, yeah. And it takes some serious thought before you can even understand what kind of product you're going to, to get into. You've got to have some sort of system concept before you even get to the manufacturer side of things. Correct. Exactly right. And that that's one of the things that our shop delivers is a system concept straight off, straight off the front. System concept is a fantastic thing to bring up. Thank you, Michael. What we're integrating, just to do the summary again, and I'm keeping these in priority order, is we're integrating heating, ventilation, filtration, humidity control, cooling, distribution, and then all the different functions to prevent the building enclosure from coming depressurized and to eliminate um, point source pollutants, things like that. So that's the priority order uh, for thermal comfort and health. And we've talked about this on other podcasts. Those two categories, thermal comfort and health, span two very widely talked about standards that uh, I encourage everyone to dig into. One is the ASHRAE comfort standard, standard 55. And the other one is the ASHRAE ventilation standard, standard 62. And for residential, it's 62.2. Both of those offer uh, rich, fertile ground for more discussion and debate, uh, especially on the ventilation side. Um, recapping one last time, a fully functional system serves all those criteria that we just talked about, heating, ventilation, filtration, humidity, cooling, distribution. Now we're going to talk about them one at a time. So we're going to jump into heating, providing heat. There's lots of ways to do it. The big three are you burn some fossil fuel, you make something very hot, electric resistance heating, or you collect the heat that's in the outdoor air and you bring it into your house. Of those three, uh, if you can do, the, the heat pump is the best and there's no way around it. it. There is some subtlety for extremely cold climates where a boiler-based system or a, or a gas system might be needed for your design temperatures, but certainly for a, a huge swath across the center of the country and you know up and down the coasts, uh, heat pump systems are superior in that A, they are exergy efficient. You're not taking 3,500 degree flames and using them to ultimately create 70 degree air temperatures in rooms. Uh, that's, that's a whole big subject. We'll talk about that when we get Robert Bean on the program. Can't wait for that one. Electric resistive heat, you know, think of glowing orange elements in your toaster. They, there's uh, supplemental heat in strips available, um, spot heat, baseboard, uh, baseboard heat, convective heaters, that kind of thing. Those can be what you would almost consider phenomenally efficient. They can approach 100% efficiency of turning that electricity into heat. Well, until you remember that a heat pump can be uh, 200%, 250, 300, sometimes six, 700% efficient of collecting heat that's already existing. No fuel required to create that heat. And then 
gathering it together and pushing it into your space. I can hear a lot of you, even though I can't. I know a lot of you are thinking, but 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 heat pumps, they're not good uh, for two reasons. One is they can't handle cold climates, and second is they don't make uh, high air temperatures. Both of those statements, uh, when you hear someone make those, or if you find yourself thinking them, really the succinct, straight-up answer on that is you need to catch up. There's more to learn. You can get very high heat pump uh, delivered air temperatures and the roll-off, the temperature at which you start to lose full capacity on these VRF, um, variable refrigerant flow, heat pumps that we like to spec, it's in the single digits, 5 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're, those two black eyes just mean that you're thinking in the 1980s. Has, time has passed. So that's heating. We'll keep it succinct. Ventilation. There's a few things you need to do when you're thinking about ventilation. One is you need to put your intake somewhere. You need to be very thoughtful about where is the source of my indoor air, excuse me, my ventilation air coming from. It's going to go to the inside. It's going to go into my client's lungs. I don't know if you guys know this, but hundreds of pounds of air a day are taken from the space you're in and put into your lungs. And those gases, or the goal of your lung is to take those gases and diffuse them into your blood so that you have energy. And in that process, if you breathe in small particles, that can cross the blood-air barrier, trigger your immune system, cause all kinds of allergy problems. You can look to some great work from people like Brett Singer and Ian Walker out there at Lawrence Berkeley um, and others, I'm forgetting your names right now, but you, there's some great work. If you go to something, I think it's indoorair.lbl.gov, check it out. Filtration and ventilation are required if you cook inside your house. <laughs> and there's, there's more to say on that. We can leave that for a different episode. So we locate our intake thoughtfully. We're filtering it. We're tempering it, possibly. Tempering in ventilation air means to offset the heat and cool or cold, the hot and cold air that might be outside. So if you have air inside your house that's warm in the winter and you're bringing in cold outdoor air, you can mix those two together and temper the air that way. Similarly, if you have cool and dry indoor air in your home in the summer, you can mix it with the hot and humid outdoor air that's coming in to offset those. After tempering comes ventilation amount. How much air? How many cubic feet per minute? Is it delivered in a balanced way? How do you distribute it? Is it a constant ventilation? Is it intermittent? If you do it intermittently, how much higher do you have to do it? So all kinds of things about that. Um, wrapping it all up, here's the ideal scenario for ventilation. You want a good enclosure. <laughs> I'm going to go back to that one. You want a balanced system, which means as it pulls air in, it sends air out. That's an ERV. You want it to be distributed around the house and mixed. You want it running all the time that, that the house is occupied. You want it to be controllable independently from your mechanical system. Um, you want it to be tempered and you want to have a low and adjustable airflow volume. So filtering, filtering is to remove particles uh, from the air and there's different techniques. There's, I mean, there's a list of them, but I'll just rattle through it. I'm not gonna talk about them, but you can look them up. There's inertial impaction, interception, Diffusion, electrostatic attraction, and sieving or sieving. Um, each one of those is effective for different size pollutants. 
So what you want is your filtration system to have the capability to use each of those capture mechanisms effectively. You'll know you're having that happen when you're seeing like a MERV 13 or a MERV 16 on there. Those are filters that use all of those mechanisms. When you start to use those high MERV filters, another, another filtration design criteria comes up and that is, uh-oh, I'm using a really tight filter. I need to manage my static pressure carefully. Um, it's a bit of a joke, but like the very best air filter would be a sheet of plastic across the air because no particles would get by, but also no, no air. air would get by, exactly. <laughs> so you need to manage the static, static pressure carefully. This means shopping the manufacturer's products carefully and making sure they're used right. And on something like a 4.5 or a 5-ton air handler, it probably means using two filter chassis side by side. And in all of these scenarios, filters are rated with uniform airflow coming in at the proper velocity across the filtration mechanism. If you have a filter near a 90 degree turn in your air distribution system, in your plenum there, you don't have uniform airflow across the filter. You have it concentrated to the, the down, the outside of the corner slide side of the current turn. So that's problematic because it's throwing air just at one part of the exactly, filter. Exactly, exactly. So you, you'll find out that there's a strip of dirty filter and then but what you get is a bunch of turbulence on the inside and no laminar flow and the filter is ineffectively used. So the approach and the velocity of air are something that your designer needs to be paying attention to. And I guess the, the one other thing, it's not tied into filtration, but since we already talked about cooking, these particulates come from cooking. It is very important and very effective to use your range hood to get those particles out of the building. That's point source ventilation. You get them out before they can get into the indoor air and need to even be dealt with by the filter. So anytime you're reaching for the knob to turn on your electric or gas range, even your induction cooktop, reach for that knob to turn on the range hood first. And soon you might not have to hassle with that. In Europe, they have automatic um, range hood standards that are in place and a lot of range hoods that have wings and uh, hood extensions that slide out because I, I think a lot of us already know that the capture efficacy of a range hood on a front burner is something like 10 to 15 percent. So if you're cooking bacon or you're boiling a pot of water for a long time, it definitely needs to be on the back burner as well as having that range hood on. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's filtration. So next on the list was dehumidification. And this is a piece, I, when I talk to people, they, and of course this is a generalization, but a lot of people don't ever really think about the humidity levels in their home. And, and I know in many conversations with you and with other folks in the building science world, when we talk about handling humidity in the home, we generally just accept that the air conditioning systems that we have, those conventional uh, units, they handle enough humidity control as a random side effect of cooling, right? <laughs> and that seems problematic because it's not predictable and we're not effectively managing it when it just sort of happens because it does. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, I get I get in my mind's eye somehow like trying to use a 15-foot pole to hit the uh, channel change button on my remote control or something. It's this indirect path. It to... might happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very indirect path, yeah. So you, you said it perfectly, yeah. Random side effect cooling. 
and or excuse me, random side effect dehumidification. So we're in a hot, humid climate. Keep that in mind. Humidity control is absolutely important for health. It's absolutely important for comfort, but I would argue that health trumps comfort. And health is something that NIH, many... So what we're seeing big picture is the, an overlap of the building sciences with the biological sciences or the medical sciences. So we're starting to understand better as an industry, as a society of people, what matters and what makes a difference. And when it comes to indoor health, indoor humidity control in humid climates or in areas where there's large humidity sources inside the building, it's top of the list. NIH has a report out there on indoor environmental exposures and exacerbation of asthma. We can put a link uh, to this report on our podcast. Be sure to check the description. Yeah, it, it's it's really, it's, it's out this year, early this year it came out. I learned about this from Lou Harriman, one of my heroes. And it was a peer-reviewed article based on uh, 69 other research articles. Um, it's been slowly moving towards this language for years, but this language of that, that exacerbation of asthma has a causal relationship with uh, dampness in buildings, that's a big deal. That doesn't just happen um, at a whim. That's not a manufacturer trying to fearmonger you into buying something. That's NIH. As you talked about random side effect dehue, if you're not cooling your building, you're not controlling humidity in your building. And in fact, if you're not if you're not cooling your building for a fairly significant period of time in a row, these, this long runtime idea, then you're not controlling humidity. Um, we have measured data on this. It's it's quite well known. And just thinking about it from a machine perspective, we talked about the idea of trying to do like a, make a multi-tool instead of using individual tools. When you try to use your air conditioner to control the humidity, you're using a tool that is designed to cool air. And it's rated by AHRI to cool air. You can bet that the designers are doing everything they can to make their metric, which is EAR or SEER, S-E-E-R or E-E-R, look good. They want a good spec. That means they want to cool as much air for as few kilowatt hours as possible. They don't care about how many pints of water they remove with those kilowatt hours. They're not incentivized to do that. No one's looking at that. That means the design is not optimized toward that. Very simple. When you, when you decide, I'm going to optimize a design to remove as many pints of water from the air per kilowatt hour, you get more effective at it. Big surprise, right? So what you end up with is double to triple the amount of water coming out of the air with a dehumidifier for every unit of energy you put in compared to an air conditioner. And so that's interesting when, when we're talking about integration. I mean, there are a lot of pieces that are, are moving with just the humidity in the air when it comes to the systems, when it comes to your, your health and comfort, um, the efficiencies of your mechanicals. So we know that when moisture is in the air, when you have that humidity, it's actually embodied energy. And that embodied energy is is behaving in such a way that it's transferring heat, right? And, mm -hmm. and your skin is not actually evaporating moisture when it's humid, so you feel less comfortable. And when you feel less comfortable, you're actually, the, the part of your brain that's processing that is is causing you to emote it. It's not like a, a logical experience. Where <laughs> yeah. you're thinking, I am uncomfortable. You, you feel kind of pissed off and you're yeah. not quite sure why all the time. And so by managing the humidity with a dedicated dehumidification unit, 
you can use lower set points, right? Your whole house is going to be more comfortable and more efficient. And one simple way to know if, if you have a dehumidification problem uh, is where you have to put your set point to be comfortable. There are, there's like a mini epidemic in the, in the South here where people say, oh, I need to keep my uh, thermostat in the summer. I like to keep it at 72 degrees or 68 degrees, something like that. When you hear that, if you want to translate that wisely, what you will hear is you need to put your set point to 72 so that your cooling system runs long enough so that as a random side effect of cooling the house, it has removed enough humidity from the house so that you're now comfortable. If you control humidity directly and you put the house at 72, it is uncomfortable. Because you're going to be a lot colder. You're going to be freezing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, there are undoubtedly people out there, that, you know, comfort is implicitly subjective in spades, and so there are people out there that at a low humidity, they still like it 72 because they like to wear sweaters in the summer or something. But, you know, here we are, Central Texas. Those of us that have been here a few years, we know if you go out to dinner or to a movie in the summer, you bring something warm to wear. Why is that? Because they're controlling humidity in the theater, for instance, so that the cushions don't smell musty and they're controlling and they have massive amounts of outdoor air coming in. So they need to control humidity. They have people breathing in there and they control humidity using the cooling. System. And it is a scientifically established fact that nobody likes a musty smelling cushion. I, I don't know about that, but I would, <laughs> I, would, I would absolutely back that up. I mean, musty smell is mold. Um, all the fancy mold detection gadgets out there, no one's invented one better than our nose. When you walk into a house, boom, you know, there's mold somewhere in here. And, you know, this whole musty mildew, it's like this friendly... I don't know, kind of sanitized way. That's pun on mold. It's, 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 like a, it's like a friendly way to say mold, right? Mildew is mold on a surface, in a fabric. So, And just to, to fully disclaim, if you hadn't picked up on the sarcasm there, there is no scientifically established fact that <laughs> musty cushions are undesirable, although we can make a pretty good assumption. That I, I would put money on it if yeah. someone wanted to wager. Wrapping up Dehue, right? The, and there's a lot to say about this. Uh, integrating it into the building, where do you pull from, where do you dump to, uh, how do you integrate it with the distribution system and the mechanicals that are already there. There's a lot to say about that. There's many alternate configurations that are possible. The main thing is to do it. If you're in a humid climate, codes are getting tighter in terms of energy use, and energy transfer inside the building. That means you know they're better insulated and airtight. And what this means is that your mechanical system runtime is shorter. That means that your side effect random dehumidification is, is getting less effective as codes are advancing. It's pretty simple. So the last piece of really humidity control that we haven't touched yet are ERV units, which is an enthalpy core. Why don't we spend a few minutes kind of unpacking that? So ERV stands for uh, enthalpy, recovery, ventilator, often referred to as energy recovery ventilator. Enthalpy and energy, it's the same thing. It's just different uh, backgrounds, I guess. Enthalpy means the heat contained in the molecular vibration of the air molecules, as well as the amount of latent heat stored in the air as humidity in the air, um, which means more energy in the air. So there are ERVs out there that have integrated dehumidifiers and the ability to control 
moisture in both summer and winter. So this means you're ventilating and tempering your air all the time and yet never over drying even in the winter. You're capturing the humidity that's in the indoors in the winter and not allowing it to go outside with the ventilation air. That's pretty cool. There's Air Pajota is the only one that I know of that has an ERV with controllable moisture recovery in it. Um, ERVs in general, though, they, they get a black eye in hot, humid climates because people say, oh, I, I used my ERV and I'm, um, my house got really humid whenever I run my ventilation system. That is pointing to the lack of independent humidity control. So what that means, what I'm saying specifically is the ERV works based on having a, a hot, humid airstream outside mixing with a cool and dry airstream from the inside. If you just have a cool but not dry airstream inside, your ERV is not going to work. So ERVs need to um, be, ERV people that are specking them and designing them need to be mindful of that, that they need to provide for dehumidification control. So the last one, the last big function, and then we go to distribution and other, the last big function is cooling. 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 It's a big deal. We, uh, we've talked about on, on the show before that we like to spec the variable capacity equipment. Um, one of the main reasons for that is efficient part load cooling performance. This means that when it's not 4 o'clock in the afternoon on August 17th, or whatever the day is, whenever your peak, whenever it's not peak cooling load moment, it means you're still able to cool your house efficiently. Right? The, the metrics that we have out there, they really are set up to tell you uh, how your air conditioner runs when it's running flat out, how efficient it is. They're not set up to tell you how efficient it is when it's running during part load. And the answer is, it doesn't. Ha if it's a standard single speed system, it, there is no part load performance. It just turns on and off more. It lets the heat build up, and then it crushes it with full capacity, and then it turns off. And then the heat builds up, crushes it with full capacity, turns off. It's like getting rid of your accelerator pedal in your car and just using your ignition key with the engine floored. Trying to stay in the speed limit. Yeah, so it's rough. Part load is real. I mean, it's very real. We all know this. Just take a day off work and sit in the middle of your living room all day long with your air conditioner off, and you'll see that the heat comes in and goes out. The... The weather is constantly changing and your enclosure is essentially um, a fixed entity. Now, it's constantly mediating heat, air, and moisture flow, but it has a certain fixed um, relationship to being a barrier to those forces or the mass and the energy there. So part load is definitely part of the equation that you're dealing with when you're thinking of a cooling system. And you can lose sight of that partly by the... There's a lot of parts in this sentence. <laughs> Partly by the existence of Manual J. Manual J, people say, I need my load calculation. Well, you know, hidden in there is Manual J is a peak load calculation, right? So I need my peak load calculation. This is like saying I need to know, uh, let's say you have a pickup truck, you need to know the weight of the load you're going to put into the bed, uh, the heaviest load you're going to put into the bed that year. So that that's what you use to your truck. Mm -hmm. So very much the same. Manual J is telling you that peak load moment. Uh, slight difference in that a load on Manual J, it's a, it's a rate of energy transfer. It's not a static thing like uh, 
a weight of logs in your truck. So there's so much to say about cooling. I don't really know what to say about it. Well, I can speak from, from experience. We have a VRF unit in our office, and it is incredibly comfortable because there are days when it is very hot here in Austin, and it does a good job of meeting the demand. You always feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then there are other days, like even in the morning, let's say, of a hot day, it's not quite gotten to the, the really uncomfortable temperature in the afternoon. It's still relatively pleasant in the morning, but it's not so pleasant that you would want to sit indoors without anything on. That VRF unit is not putting out as much cooling, which would have made me cold and a bit uncomfortable in the office. But it is putting out enough that I feel like, wow, this is a, a stable indoor environment for t- me to be in. I can think clearly. Yeah. And it really does a good job of meeting those demands in the variable capacities that they show up. Yeah, exactly. And energy-wise, we have a wall unit and a compact ducted unit. Our wall unit is pulling something like 0.2 amps. It's it's using about as much energy as a light bulb inside there when it's cooling. It's very efficient, very effective. So just you know, wrapping it up, right? There's basically three choices when you go out on the market to provide to buy cooling equipment. They're all based on the vapor compression cycle. Vapor compression cycle is basically uh, like a based on the quote magics of physics and thermodynamics. It's like a big shovel to move air from inside to excuse me to move heat from one place to another. So for cooling, everything's based on that. And then there's three main flavors out there. There's single stage or fixed capacity systems, which come on, they're floored, they run at that capacity. There's the slightly better system, which has two stages, which has either um, the ability to, let's say you have a two-ton system, well, a four-ton system, excuse me, a four-ton two-stage could operate at four tons, two tons are off. Right? So there's, there's two-stage systems, and there's also unloaders, which is a different type of two-stage, and then there are the, the variable capacity systems that are out there. Every manufacturer is, either has or is introducing VRF, and the, the best ones are the ones where you can have a single outdoor unit serving multiple indoor zones independently, meaning one outdoor unit, let's say, and four air handlers inside, one for the central core, one for the master, one for the guest bedroom, and then one for the office, something like that. So that would be really sweet. And these aren't old, or these aren't new technology. These Correct. are have been around in Europe and Asia for a long time and mm-hmm. been in wide use yeah. uh, in both those markets as well. So seeing them proliferate into the American marketplace has been exciting, if slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's really the time for it to start finding its traction is now. And so if you guys are looking to spec something for a house you're building, for yourself or for a client, it really is a good way to go. And I couldn't recommend it more when you're thinking about how to uh, manage your air. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it, there's like I have a bemused smirk sometimes when I talk to a homeowner or a builder uh, and they say, well, I'm going to go with this, um, insert the name of some American-based manufacturer that's just come out with a VRF system and it's brand new. It's like a six-month-old product. You're going to be, you know, the uh, early adopter. And the reason they like it is because they trust the name, and they they don't like the names like Mitsubishi, LG, Daikin, Fujitsu as much. Um, although most of these companies are international at this point, and the LGs and the Mitsubishi, Daikins have been around, as you say, for 25, 30 years. So that we'll call that a wrap-up on cooling. Uh, the last topic 
before the other category is distribution. There is a lot to say about distribution. We'll try to hit the high points here for you. One is that when you're distributing air, you're distributing heating and cooling around your house. So to be comfortable, you need to do, you need to deliver it in the right amounts to the right spaces. This means integrating, well, this means a design for the distribution system. This doesn't mean just hoping your installer got it right. This means someone, it could be the installer, looking at how much air needs to go where and managing the distribution through duct sizing. And that's a big deal. That's like a first order effect. The, the materials that you make your air distribution system out of, they are extremely important and everything could be said to depend on them. The summary on that is uh, flex duct, uh, so duct board plenums and flex duct can be used right. It's rarely done right. I mean, the plenum design, particularly uh, where you locate the runout, uh, the excuse me, where you locate the trunks on the plenum is a big deal. Um, you know, I don't want to give away too much of our design secrets, but <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you guys a couple of them. So the supply plenum is the bit of ductboard that sticks out on the supply side where the filter isn't on your air conditioner and you never want to see a duct coming off of the top of that. Air is heavy, it doesn't want to push off the top and a supply plenum is based on pressure so you want that plenum to pressurize and have that pressure drive the airflow out through the ducts. That means you don't want to put a big duct on the downstream end of it because then this plenum won't pressurize. Yeah, it's just reasonable stuff and unfortunately it's compromised by one of the two things I said up front, which is not allowing enough space, right? You, you, and I don't mean just space for the mechanical system and the ducts. I mean, it would be nice if that's all you had to allow, but you need to allow enough space for a human being to work carefully and effectively to install those systems. So you can't say, you know, I have my magic genie and I poured him back into that little triangular void and he put mastic on the back of the backside of the plenum to connect it to the chassis, it, it's again, you're relying on wishful thinking and that you actually you're relying on fiction. <laughs> so, you know, to summarize the idea about flex and duckboard, fantastic products when used properly, they're rarely used properly. Flex, particularly, um, you know, the, originally, it, like there's a spec about pulling it for something like 30 seconds with 50 pounds of force and then letting it relax back and that's considered straight. Flex was only to be used for straight sections with with metal 90s and 45s used on all the ends. Um, but Flex has some outstanding properties. One is that sound transmission is blocked. So acoustic comfort is as important an environmental comfort factor as anything else. So, well, maybe not quite. I mean, if, if you die from heat, you might not die from noisy ducts, but <laughs> acoustic comfort is important and Flex can do that very well. Flex has integrated into its... Um, assembly there, the insulation, right? So that means that if you use metal everywhere, then secondarily, you need to come back and insulate that. And you might have difficulty insulating outsides of metal distribution systems, whereas Flex solves that problem. Well, Flex can also create a problem too. Flex allows ductwork origami to occur. You can cram it into all sorts of strange volumes and passageways. And in so doing, create all kinds of uh, 
bends and turns and the you know flex is made out of a uh, spiral spring if you push it close together well then it's very bumpy and air doesn't want to flow across it so you get a lot of turbulence yada 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 you get where this is going this is having to do all these restrictions to moving air through your distribution system they're not free you have a motor on the other end and its job is to push air through that system if you make it hard it's going to work harder and use more energy and in fact you know in our new world of um, uh, ECM motors electrically commuted motors commutated motors versus the permanent split capacitor ones that used to be out there the PSC motors permanent split capacitor ones they would just come on and move it and come on at a certain speed using a certain amount of power and if the air didn't make it out the other end well they didn't care they didn't use any more energy the new ECM ones they're going to ramp up their RPMs and their energy use to try hard to move air. So the the sad reality is that you can go on a retrofit situation, take out a PSC motor-based system and put in an ECM motor-based system and use more energy. Now, you know, the benefit of using more energy is that you moved more air through the tightly constricted intestinal-looking mm -hmm. <laughs> air distribution system. Um, so what I'm saying is that design for your air distribution system it should be part of your integrated design process. It should align with the volumes and cavities of the space. It should be matched to the CFMs you want to deliver, where you want to deliver them. Are they coming out of a ceiling or a sidewall or a floor? Those are all important considerations. You manage the process in terms of static pressure, in terms of CFM. The last piece of distribution that is often overlooked, and it's a shame, it's where the rubber really meets the road in terms of air and the space and that is the diffuser so high sidewall double throw double deflection diffusers they can be high aspect they can look a little bit like linear bar drills those are what you want you want those on the interior walls aimed to the out exterior walls but they're so ugly Christoph. <laughs> my clients will never want them yeah i don't know like do your clients look at the nice tires on their sports car and say oh they're black and they're you know i don't like the way the tread looks it's it's a functional item. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know the home has to have a... I mean, it really, it has to be beautiful so it's maintained and it's going to last a long time and it has to be that way. A beautifully functional diffuser, to call that ugly and to exclude it from your design, you, you do so at a slight risk. I mean, we go to design meetings all the time and inspect slots and floor grills. It's, um, it's part of the game. It's part of the game. And... You know what? I would be much more comfortable doing that, compromising the distribution as the enclosure gets better. If we do thermal flux densities of 10 or less, truly it starts to not matter how the conditioned air gets into the space if you're using air. And you could use thermally active systems too. But when it comes to how critical is it that I throw and mix my air to the proper amounts, that scales with enclosure the the better the enclosure well actually it's con inverse to that the better the enclosure the less it matters how you did, distributed the air and sent it in with the diffuser the if you have a, a wall full of glass and you say all i can give you is a floor diffuser in that space and no ceiling fan to help with mixing or anything like that you've compromised client comfort and that's okay and that should be part of the owner's project requirements. The client is the owner. You talk to the client. You say, look, this aesthetic is important. It's important to you. Are you willing to, to risk um, a comfort offset with that right. aesthetic? 
And simple. I like to think of it in the sense that there is a visual aesthetic and then there are other aesthetic considerations too. Which <laughs> visual is and other. How you actually feel. Um, and so as long as the knowledge is there and the client does understand that there is some sort of compromise being made, then we've done our due diligence. That's exactly right. Because we can advocate for something all day long, but you can't really change someone's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's also true that as these codes change, you're getting fewer and fewer amounts of air needed per space. So you could argue that people can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have slots and floor diffusers in all my designs, and it's fine. Well, if that was done based on a different energy code, you probably had maybe 0.7, cubic feet of CFM, of delivered air, per square foot of floor. We're seeing some of our designs now 0.3, right? So half as much air per square foot of floor. One clue as to whether you're getting this stuff right on your designs is if you have a drawing of the mechanical system, if you have a list of the diffusers that are going to be used. If that list of diffusers, it needs to say where they are, what type they are, how many CFM are coming out of them, what size duct they're attached to, and then ideally the actual specific manufacturer model number for the diffuser with all the colors and you know, opposed blade dampers and all the mm-hmm. different accessories you can do for them. So if you're seeing that, then you probably got distribution right. And I want to I want to just kind of summarize on all these things, right? It, it related to comfort delivery. The truth of the situation is now is that most clients assume that the design professionals involved in the process, the architects and the builders and the trades, they know all this and they're doing all this. And that's a big assumption in a lot of cases. Um, so there's a risk factor for all involved. If the assumption is made that I have this, that I know the difference between a condiment and poison from a comfort perspective, then when something goes wrong, if they, oh boy, when something does go wrong in a comfort complaint, what happens is human psychology enters in and suddenly the client is, tr- you know, is very sensitive to that comfort issue and they start to notice it everywhere. It's just like, the, what's the car thing? If you buy a, I don't know, a Honda Fit, um, you suddenly notice them all over the road. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to a house and you're hot in the afternoon, you suddenly are like Hawkeye, you know, looking for that <laughs> issue to occur. And that's a big tangle for, for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. So last, last tiny little piece about distribution is don't forget, it doesn't have to be air to move heat and cool. Air does need to be involved for breathing and filtering the air and dehumidifying it, but it doesn't need to be involved for heating and cooling. You can do that with thermally active surfaces. In my climate, probably the ceilings. Um, Let's wrap up. Well, we've talked a lot about an immense amount of complexity when it comes to thinking about your home's HVAC. Uh, It's not just your AC unit that a lot of people consider, right? There are a ton of pieces to the puzzle. There's the, the enclosure, there's dehumidification, there's heating, there's cooling, mm-hmm. there's filtration. ventilation, there's filtration. There's so much to consider, right? And we want to make sure that you have informed and thorough conversations about this for every project that you get involved on because it is your responsibility as the architect, as the builder, as the the concerned homeowner who's commissioning this house. Yeah, You've got to make sure that if, if you really care about this stuff, that it's taken care of in the right way. Yep. I'm going to do my, my little summary, too. I have uh, some ideas came up while you were talking there. When it comes to the, the integration that we talked about, the integrated design, we have all those things that you just listed. 
and we also have the fact that we're going to need to deal with the water. How do we heat it? How do we move that around? That can be thought about. Can we reject some of the heat from our mechanical system in the summer into the water? That's called de-superheating. That's a big deal. Uh, when the range hood comes on, is makeup air provided? When you come and go through the garage door, are you making sure that air, when it's an attached garage, are you making sure that air is not going to be able to make its way into the house? Lighting could be integrated. On-site um, energy production and energy storage could be integrated. And then the very last piece is the controls piece. And that could be, and I guess should be a whole, whole talk on its own. Summarizing them right now is that Separate controls is a good thing. Distributed systems, controllable independently, where the controls are kept as simple as possible is probably the way to go. And the Internet of Things is the elephant in the room here. It's having huge um, and still you know, undetermined implications in that product space. There is, believe it or not, even after all this time, more to say. But we have more podcasts to record. We do have. We more can't to say. give it all away in one. Yeah, that's true. Don't don't be shy to spend money on taking the time to design, commission, and install properly uh, your mechanical system. Um, there really is a drop in the bucket for most budgets that are building a custom brand new house, and when you can communicate the importance of it, that's really where the budgetary concerns really yeah. diminish. Yeah. If you, if you ask your average client, if you say. What do you think about 10% of the construction costs being used for the mechanical system uh, installation, testing, and design? Right? 10%. It's like, that's like, kind of like saying the engine of the car is 10% of the cost of the car. Do you think the average client is going to go, oh my goodness? In fact, if they found out that it was 1% to 3%, that's, that's typically the case, that, I bet, would cause them to have some reaction. <laughs> Uh, so work with a smart, motivated, functional team. Talk to your clients. Write things down in an OPR if you can. And do integrated design. Test it. And you're good. And be sure to keep listening to our podcast because we have a lot of great ones coming up. Yeah, we really appreciate you guys out there. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks so much, everyone. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We're at positiveenergy.pro. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. <laughs>